John chapter 8. We've got, we we um, haven't been in John for a while because we had two weeks. We were at the Catalyst Festival and we did the fun run. Then Melanie spoke last week. If you want to catch up on what Melanie said, I know a lot of people got really affected by it. Please go and download that from the web. Learn all about Ben and Jerry's ice cream and how that affects your life for the glory of God. So go and catch it up. We're back in John. Um, now, I want you, before we just jump in there, I want you to cast your mind back over your life. And um, I want you to think about a situation in your life where, where you've been caught red-handed at something. We don't use that expression when you get caught red-handed, when you've been found out and exposed and you know you have been, you've been got banged to rights. You're guilty and you've, you have that moment of dread and kind of like, I've been caught out and people know about it. I had one of these experiences when I was young. I was trying to remember the age. I remember it so vividly, but I'm trying to remember how old I was. I was about six or seven. And I was round a friend's house playing in our little cul-de-sac that I grew up in, that we, we lived. And I went round to play with his. His name was David. And we were playing in the garden. Um, and we were playing with some of the kind of garden toys they have, diggers and, the, and jeeps and the like. And one of his garden toys was over the fence or in his neighbour's garden, who we also happened to know, because it was a small cul-de-sac, and they had a boy in their garden who was a little bit older, but there was no one in the house at the time. Um, and the fence between the two neighbours wasn't like a high standard fence. It was one of those slatted fences, so it wasn't very high, but it had gaps in it, so you could easily get through. And one of his toys was over the other side of the fence. He said, oh, we want to play with that toy. We need to get it back. He said, let's go and get it. And I went, all right. And so I went through the fence first, which was my big mistake. So I, was, I, got, I, got, I snuck through the fence like this, you know, through the fence. And I was going to go and get the kind of toys to return it. And then there was this moment as I was going, and I suddenly realised I was alone, rather than having a partner in crime with me. And so I kind of stopped, and I was like, I'm on my own. And I looked back, and David was still the other side of the fence, looking at me. And then he looked at me, and then he looked left like that. And I was like, why are you looking over there? And as I turned to look, the mum of the house, that, whose garden I was now in, was stalking up the garden. And stalking's the only word I could think of. And she just had me in her sights. And I suddenly realised that I was in her garden about to take something out of her garden. And she could see me. And she had caught me kind of in the act. And that sense of dread and terror knowing that I have been done. And there's nothing I could do. There's no, I couldn't say, well, I, you know what, I got lost. Or anything like that. <laughs> Look where I am. How did I get here? Kind of situation. And so do you know what I did as a six or seven year old boy? I legged it. I just legged it home. I just ran out of that garden after, across the road to where we were, into, my, into our house. I ran upstairs, past my mum and dad, into my bedroom, and I hid behind the wardrobe in my bedroom. And the wardrobe, it was about this, there's a gap between the wall and the wardrobe. I was like that, this thing, and I had to get in sideways like that. And I literally stood in there for, I don't know how long, several days it felt like. But I was there, just in there waiting, knowing that I was guilty and judgment in some form or other, punishment, was coming my way. And it's something that even now, how many years later, 30 plus years later, um, I can still remember vividly. And what we've got today in John's Gospel is a story with a bit of that going on here, where someone is caught red-handed, banged to rights, they are guilty, and it's how Jesus deals with them into that situation. So let's just have a little look at the passage. If you go to John chapter 8, we're probably going to read the, read the last verse of the, um, the previous passage, previous chapter, 
verse 53, it says, They went each to his own town, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might come up with some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Jesus said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So we've got this passage here that comes... When Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles, which is what we looked at last time, he'd gone up to Jerusalem. John's Gospel based a lot around the big Jewish feasts that were held in Jerusalem um, at the time. And they've had some incidents there. Jesus has stood up and proclaimed about, come to me, living water. And then this incident occurs in it. There's a note in my Bible that probably be in your Bibles about um, questions about whether the, where this passage should go in John's Gospel. It wasn't in some of the early, earliest manuscripts. Some of them put, them put it at the end of Luke. And there's basically just some confusion. But a long-standing tradition of the church is it goes here in the middle of John's Gospel. And there's no big reason to dispute that. Um, so that's why you find in your Gospel but they are in this point. But there's, there's a little note to say, actually, there's a little bit of confusion about it. But it's still part of um, God's Word to us. And we're going to look at it. So, Jesus is teaching in the temple, which was normal practice for teachers, for rabbis to do. It was a big open area, warm climate They would go and they would sit and people would come to them and they would teach. And that was just the normal practices and Jesus was part of that. So you've got to imagine him sitting maybe on one of the stones or the walls around the temple and people had come to him, gathered to talk, whether they were standing or sitting, and this is what's going on. So he's here teaching and it says a group come up to him. It's very public. This is they didn't have classrooms off to the side where they would go. They would be in a public forum with people wandering around backwards and forwards, doing what they were doing, going to the temple to worship, sacrifice, etc. And it says the scribes and the Pharisees came to him. Now the scribes, teachers of the laws, um, expositors of God's word. They were part lawyer, part um, theologian, part kind of ethics teacher. They're the ones who understood the, the law. The Pharisees we come across. Um, a sect within Judaism who were really passionate about God, really passionate to keep his law, to keep it safe. They'd made extra laws on top of God's laws to kind of create a boundary around God's law. They were super spiritual, super kind of passionate, devoted men of God. And they come in and they come dragging this woman who has been caught in the act of adultery. So imagine this situation now when I'm teaching you and you are in rapt awe and attention of everything I'm saying. And imagine the doors kind of bang open... And a group come in, and in between them, there is this woman who is being kind of brought before him. You can imagine everything, the, the, the atmosphere changing, all eyes suddenly going on to this group. Whatever Jesus was saying, he would probably would have stopped, 
because no one has suddenly been listening, everyone's attention's focused on here, and you've got these guys coming in, the Pharisees would have been wearing their robes and their phylacteries and all, all their bits and pieces, and in the midst would be this lady. And if this lady was caught in the act of adultery, we don't know, it doesn't say, but we can kind of think, well, what would she look like? If she was, had literally just been caught, was she part-dressed? Was she been kind of dragged trying to cover a bit of her dignity? Has she been calling? Was she being pulled in by these guys? Were they kind of frog marching her? You know that sense of you're going to go this way whether you like it or not. So there's a little bit of manhandling going on. Was she presented like pushed on the floor in front of them? There she was. Was she just pushed out in the front and suddenly stood surrounded by all these guys staring at her who'd been listening to Jesus? Jesus' followers, again, all men. This kind of a lone woman in this environment. All these guys staring at her, looking at her. What would it, must it have been like? Um, the interesting thing to point out in here is, I don't know if, I'll, just, I'll explain the basics, but adultery is a sin you cannot commit on your own. Okay? You need someone to help you with that. But the guy wasn't there. There was only the girl. So she'd been caught in the act of adultery, and there was someone startling omission. The man she'd been doing it with, if you will. So he's not there. So they've obviously just grabbed the girl. We don't know why. We can surmise that we don't know why. Maybe he's done a runner or they just left and they weren't interested in him. But they dragged this woman and she's been presented to Jesus. And for me, it's kind of like a dun-dun-dun moment. They almost come in. Everything changes. You get thrown on the floor and it's dun-dun-dun. What do we do? If it was a soap opera, that would be the bit where it goes... You'd have to think, oh, tune in tomorrow. Find out what's going to happen. And there this woman is, presented before Jesus with an accusation of a major sin that she'd committed and all eyes are on her and it's just there's a kind of a moment of silence. And then we see the challenge that these guys put before them. And they say, now in the law, the law of Moses, Moses commands us to stone such a woman. Stone her. What do you say, Jesus? And they said this, it says, to test him. They're not interested in the woman in any way, shape or form. They're not interested in compassion or mercy or even righteous judgment, they want to test Jesus. They want to trap him. They want to catch him out. We've seen in John's Gospel this rising kind of tide of opposition that is going up and up and up and up, which we know will ultimately culminate in him being crucified, then wanting to kill him, and succeeding in their mission in that sense. And so this is, they're just trying to catch this guy out. They don't like Jesus. They're, they're against him. And this poor woman has kind of become the pawn in this. I think, let's trap Jesus. Let's do something to him and will use this lady to do it. But what they do do is they quote to Jesus, um, they mention the law of Moses, and what they actually quote is true. It says actually in Deuteronomy 22, that if a, a man or woman found um, lying together and they're actually with someone else, so actually that is the consequence. Interestingly, it's actually for both parties, not just the female, it's for both parties of them, that they should do that. And what it probably say, it says for us is actually that this woman was either betrothed or married. That's the kind of implication, as I read around, because of the charge they've laid against her. She was either engaged or married, or she was married herself um, for what she was doing. So she was actually in, she was guilty for what she's done. She'd been caught red-handed in it. Um, but we can see an evidence of kind of probably male chauvinism in here in the fact that there's no guy there. It's just the girl as part of this um, process. Um, but then what, what, as I read around, there's little evidence, actually, that this, this punishment was actually carried out in Jesus' day. 
So it's not something that actually they, they did, but it was still in the law of Moses. And they brought this to Jesus, and they're trying to trap him. And what they're trying to get him to do is pick kind of one of three possibilities, or track him into things that they know is going to undermine him and damage him. Because Jesus could say, um, no, 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 let's not stone her. Let's just let her go, which undermines his belief and faith in the law, which he is passionate about, God's law, God's words, God's scripture. He says it's good and it's right. He says, you know, heaven and earth are going to pass away. Those words aren't going to pass away. This is, the law is good. So if he ignores the law, suddenly they can point to him and say, this guy's not a teacher. He doesn't uphold the law. They can totally kind of pull him down from that point and he, he loses all credibility and actually we can't listen to him. So if Jesus does that, that's what they're going to say. They're going to go, ha, ha, ha. You can't undermine the law. But what happens if, um, if he says, fine, why don't you say, fine, let's stone her. Let's do it now. Suddenly, Jesus' kind of platform that he's, he's very much, he, he cares for the outcasts, um, the, the, the sinners he hangs out with, he's got great compassion, that's one of the things he is known for. Suddenly, one of them is brought before him, and he just disowns us. So suddenly, there's a sense of, well, we'll get him on, on his kind of, um, his popularity, his popular base, we'll undermine that, because everyone will see that actually he hasn't got compassion on these people. He can just be as judgmental and hard as us on them. And so they're like that. And what about the teaching about the life-transforming power of the Spirit? You're talking about being born again. It's all about this new life that you can have. Living water, you come. It all undermines who Jesus is. And also, they're hoping that if he does pronounce a death sentence on them, what, it, what does it do? It'll get him in trouble with the Romans. Because the only people who can pronounce death sentences are the Romans, because they're the ones in command. That's why we see at the end of the Gospel, what happened? They arrested Jesus, and where did they have to take him? The Roman governor. You kill him for us, because we can't but we want you to do it on our behalf. So they're trying to trap him and get him into them. And it's a very kind of like, what's going to happen now? Another dun dun dun. That would have been a really short episode. That would have been a really... The woman's come in and they say, what are you going to do about it? And then dun 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 dun. Another, what what happens here? And then it says, uh, uh, halfway through verse 6, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. So he's obviously standing. And he's writing in the dust, in the mud, on the ground. No one knows what he was writing, because it doesn't say. There are lots of speculations, lots of fanciful ones. I read commentaries, and there were all sorts of, maybe he was doing this, maybe he was doing this. Maybe he was writing a list of their sins. Hypocrisy, or something at the top. Maybe he was writing a a scripture verse. A a long-standing church tradition was he wrote um, Jeremiah 17, 13, where it says, For those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water, which is what Jesus had just talked about in the previous section. But the point is, we don't know. Now, I spoke to Melanie about this when we were driving down to see family yesterday and said, what do you think Jesus wrote? And she said, I reckon Jesus was slowly counting to ten before we unleashed on them. You know that kind of one, two, three, just kind of just gathering himself before he's like, and I was thinking, if I was Jesus, I'd be like call down fire from heaven or something like that. You know, let's just burn these fools. Um, but I'm not Jesus. Um, in case you're wondering. But, so he, there's a delay there. So that, that would have been one of those long pauses, kind of like, they're like, what are you going to do, Jesus? And he's just like, just... And there would have just, the silence would have stretched out. Would have stretched out. And there would have been people waiting. The woman, what would she have been like? She'd been caught red-handed. She's waiting for the, the axe to fall. The, 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 the guys who brought them, the scribes and the Pharisees, they're like, what are you going to do, Jesus? Because whatever way you do, we're going to get you. Because you, you, you can't get out of this. We've got you. You're kippered and we're going we're gonna to come for you. And all the people around, the disciples, those listening, those kind of passing by, thinking, oh, something's going on here. They're like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And then Jesus comes out 
with the most profound response. So as the silence stretched out, he says, he stood up, and so, I reckon he did it slowly, it was just slowly. You know, that kind of draw the tension out. And then it says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. And then, and then once more, he went back down and wrote on the ground. Whatever it was, I reckon he could have been doodling. Just finish my picture. You know, it's me and the 12, and the, you know, we're feeding the five down, or something. But that's all he said. That's what he said. He said, You, who's ever without sin, cast the first. And what he's doing, they've used the law against him. He's just throwing it straight back at them. Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 17. It basically says in the law that if you're going to do that stoning, the witness of the act has to be the one to throw it. It's almost like if you saw it and you're bringing the charge against them, the capital offence, you've got to take the initiative and you've got to be the one who starts the process. And so he's basically saying to them, if you're the one who's witnessed this, you're the one who's got to start him. But then he adds something in. He says, actually, you've got to be without sin. And what he's basically saying is that if you're going to be the person who kind of casts a stone, you cannot be complicit in the crime whatsoever. Which means you can't be someone who has um, tried to trap someone into this. You can't, be some, you can't be guilty of entrapment, trying to catch someone out. And you can't be guilty of allowing something to happen and not doing anything about it. Jesus is basically talking about the sins of commission and the sins of omission. Commission are active, willful sins we do. Omission are things we should have done that we do not do. And Jesus is basically saying to them, if you're not guilty of the sin of commission, i.e. you haven't done anything to create this situation and put this woman in this thing, you can throw a stone. And if you're not guilty of just letting it happen to create an environment to bring to me, you also can throw the first stone. So he's basically saying, if you are guiltless in this situation, you haven't caused it to come about or let it come about by your own actions... We don't know what he kind of knows, what he's driving at. We don't know the backstory, But he's pointing at something. He's saying, if you're guiltless in those situations, by all means, you, can, you, 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 you are righteous. You can do something about it. And so he's basically pointing them and saying, actually, go for your life. And this woman, we know, is caught red-handed. We know the passage. We know she's guilty. But what Jesus is actually saying is actually he's pointing to, the, to them and actually saying, this woman's been caught red-handed. Guess what? So have you. So have you. You're as guilty as she is because you've created this situation. You've brought this about. And so actually, you're just as bad as she is in this whole thing. Because you, your, your sin might not be adultery, but your sin might be hypocrisy. Your sin might be allowing this to happen. Your sin might be setting this up. And so he brings it to him. And, and Jesus is almost saying, yeah, we can, we can bring judgment, but only under right, right moral conditions. And you guys are not doing it. And they came to shame Jesus and shame this woman. And Jesus turned it around and ended up shaming them. And then we get the aftermath of the situation. Notice they don't speak anymore. Sign of their guilt. They're just, they're dumbfounded. They don't speak a word. It says um, they, they, they leave. And interesting, there's a really interesting comment where it says, who left first? Beginning with the older ones. That's an interesting kind of, you know, notes that the author puts in there. The older ones, I reckon it's the older ones were just that much wiser and that much more aware of themselves that suddenly Jesus has pointed out their sin. They're like, uh-oh, we've just been caught. Let's, you know, like me legging it when I got caught there just slowly. Let's just, 
back away. If you're the first to go, no one notices. You don't want to be the last to leave. Because if you're the last to leave, you're just like, oh my goodness, everyone's left without me. Like my mate who just left me. Um, but older and wiser. Um, but he, that's what he says, the oldest leave first. And they gradually, the crowd, the scribes, they melt away. And they're gone. And what we have left is the focus of it is Jesus and this woman. Now, interestingly, this is the first time Jesus addresses her. He hasn't actually said anything to her at this point. She's obviously come. She's present, but hasn't said, he hasn't addressed her directly. And he talks to her respectfully. Actually, that's the, the tone of what he's saying. And he basically says to her, he didn't say, he didn't ask her, well, are you guilty? Because interestingly, he knows. But he actually says, where, where are they? Your accuser, where are your accusers? Where are those who are going to condemn you? Are they, are they still here? To which she replies. The first time she speaks, she says, no one, they're not here. They're not, there's no one to condemn me. They've, they've gone. They've left. And Jesus says, well, then neither do I condemn you. We've read in John, 30, uh, John 3, chapter 17, that Jesus' mission wasn't to come and condemn, but to save. And he's like, he's like I'm not going to condemn you either. He came. And as God, Jesus as God, he has the right to forgive sins. He shows her mercy and he shows her grace and forgiveness. And then he gives her a charge at the end. He says, well, I don't condemn you, which is in line with his mission. But he does say to a very firm charge, um, go from here and sin no more. So there's a very clear line that Jesus is saying, what her, her actions, her lifestyle that she's been doing. Um, he's saying, no, do not do that anymore. Go from here. But he showed her grace, uh, mercy, and forgiveness in that situation. A few, a little quick, as it's Father's Day, I always do a quick um, aside um, to the men here about from this passage. Interestingly, whenever we think about this passage and whenever we talk about it, we always focus on the woman. Because even, even the, the name of the passage, when anyone talks about it, it's the woman caught in adultery. That's even what it says in my Bible. And if, if you, if, what passage are you talking about, Stuart? Oh, the woman caught in adultery. And everyone goes, I know that one. I know that one. But actually, it's a passage about, more about men than this woman. Who are the main players? Well, Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees, who would have all been men, who brought them to Jesus. And we see examples of behavior here. And there's an example of behavior that we should reject and be appalled at. And there should, there's examples of behavior that we should admire and go after. What do we see from the, the scribes and the Pharisees? We see some particularly ugly male characteristics here. The first one, we see chauvinism. They're clearly disrespectful of the female in the story. There's no man that she would have been committing adultery with. He is noticeably absent from the story. We don't know whether they let him go, whether they thought, you know, it's all right for guys to do that because men have urges, whatever they say. But the women, oh, that's very bad if they get involved in that. We don't know. But there's an evidence that they are after the women. They're happy to condemn her. They're happy to publicly humiliate her um, in the most... You know, awful way possible, bring her out in public, deal with this, let's expose this, let's point all the, um, the fingers at her. Clearly she was in the wrong, but how they treated her was terrible in that kind of environment. We see them ganging up, we see pack mentality. There's something that happens when you get more and more men together, that their IQ and their judgment drop, but their passion and self-righteousness and just general... Rah! increases. I just don't know. It's just one of those scientific facts. And when you get more and more together, that the men get more like, and, and they just get stupider. They just get dumber. And, and this is what happened. These guys have just ganged up on this woman. They're physically bigger and stronger than she is, because men generally are. And there would be multiple. They outnumber her. There's one of her, and there's a crowd of these guys who would have brought her before Jesus, dragging her. I can't imagine she would have come willingly. So there had to be a bit of... Mm. 
manhandling, bringing her. They were bullying her, humiliating her, showing her no respect whatsoever, and they were just they were out to get her. And then we see pride in them. They brought her before God, um, for Jesus, keen to accuse her of sin. Keen to do it, but no point examining their own hearts and thinking, actually, how do we stand in it? See, their total focus was, let's humiliate her, let's, let's expose her sin, make sure everyone else knows about it, use it for our own ends, we want to trap Jesus, we don't even care about this woman, we want to get Jesus, we want to get at him. They show that pride, and all the time, not realising the sin in their own heart, which Jesus deftly exposes with one statement, a few words, I don't know how many there were, like nine or ten words, and it's suddenly... Uh, Their sin and their pride is exposed. And they brought a woman before Jesus, caught red-handed in sin. And Jesus turns it around and says, I've caught you red-handed in your sin as well, of pride. And then we see on the other side, we see Jesus. Jesus, We see um, the things that Jesus displayed that are to be commended. He showed great respect for the woman in the story. He He showed great respect for women generally, as we read the Gospels. And it was a time and a culture... When women had very little rights, sometimes they were considered property. They couldn't vote, they couldn't give evidence in court. They were considered very low, kind of on the social strata. I think there was even a prayer, I can't remember who it was, about prayer about you know, this guy thanking God. And one of them was, thank God I wasn't born a woman. <laughs> and you're like, really? That's one of your, you know, thank God for my food, thank God for this, thank God I wasn't born a woman. And you're like, really? Okay, so the opinion wasn't high, but Jesus showed great respect for women. He treated them, even this woman, who was clear to have guilt and sin in her life, which had been exposed publicly. So she, you know, she was guilty. Jesus still showed respect to her. And Jesus' actually respect actually went wider, generally for the poor, the broken, the marginalised, the downtrodden. He showed great respect for people that generally in society would not necessarily have received it. He also showed huge amounts of strength. Jesus, sometimes we can he, we almost think, because of his humility or meekness is another word that she uses. He was weak. He wasn't weak. He stood there and he was put on the spot publicly. I can't imagine what would happen if I was doing this with a public setting. You were all listening in rapt awe, attention and wonder. And there were people wandering around. And they brought something before you. And suddenly everything went silent and they looked at me. I would be, just, I'd be dying. I don't care what's happening there. I'd be thinking, how do I get out of this? But Jesus stayed strong. He was not going to be pushed by someone else's agenda. He did the whole, let's draw, I'm just going to draw. You know, made everyone wait. Then he spoke, you know, what he'd thought about it. And then he went back to it. And that was the deal. He wasn't going to be pushed. He wasn't going to be bent over. He wasn't going to jump in. He wasn't going to say, yeah, oh, you're horrible, sinner. Which, interestingly for Jesus, he had the right to do. We don't, but he did, didn't he? He could have very easily have condemned the woman because he was the only one who was free from all guilt and sin anyway. But he didn't. He showed incredible strength. And then he showed wisdom, which is staggering. His insight was brilliant. What he said to these guys, that just in one statement, shattered their perfect plan. They thought, we've got him. Jesus seemed to do that a lot. You wonder why they, just, they didn't just give up, but they kept coming. There's always someone who thinks, I'll oh, try and test Jesus. But it never worked. But he had one short statement. He just shattered their argument. He saw through the motives. He saw through the surface. He saw what was going behind. He thought, all right, I'm going to deal with the root behind this. And he spoke to it. And to us guys, my question to just sort of throw out today is, where are you drawing your kind of role model from? 
because there's lots of things in this world that we can emulate and desire, and it's sometimes it's a manly thing. We want to be, um, we want to be kind of respected in our own right. We want to achieve great things. We have heroes of our own that we might look to, men we admire, things that we see, things that they between think, well, I'd like to achieve something like that. I'd like to do something like that. Um, there were 11 guys playing a football game last night. You might be thinking, come on. And then, yeah, then we saw the result, and it all went downhill from there. But, you know, who are you looking to, to get your kind of like, who are, we, are you trying to emulate? Am I, I submit to you, is the only one we can really get kind of full sort of um, completeness in that is Christ. Christ is the only one who has all characteristics that are good and right and true and worth emulating. And they're not things of this world. I'm not saying there aren't probably men and women around who you can emulate. But actually, it's all about Jesus. It's all about coming back to him and learning from him. And if we're going to be guys who want to walk in that fashion, he's got to be the one we're following first and foremost. And not just in a, oh, he's my hero, Jesus is my homeboy kind of thing. Actually, we've got to be learning and studying about him and examining how he dealt with situations. So when things come up with us, we take principles we've learned and we can put it in place. So what it comes back to is, how well do you know Jesus? How well are you, are you building a life where I'm trying to get to know him more and more through studying the scriptures? I've, um, I kind of challenge you at the beginning of the year, we're going to be looking through John's Gospel. Let's get into John's Gospel and learn everything we can over this year um, and do it. How's that going for you? I'm kind of, I've read it cover to cover a couple of times, John's Gospel. I'm now doing the slow bit where I'm trying to read a little section and just ask the question, who is Jesus, and just jot something down. I've almost finished that. Um, I think I'm about chapter 19. So I'm really trying to understand Jesus through John's Gospel. And then once I've done that, I want to try and read in a few different translations just because I'll go back to just reading a chapter a day or something. But it's actually the whole point. Of, are, we getting, are, you, are you making a point daily to get to know Jesus? Because he's the one we should be emulating. He's the one we should be following. All right, last thing. Three things that I want us all to learn from this passage that we can take away. Number one, before Jesus, we are all guilty. When you read that story, the woman caught in adultery, that's you. That's me. Often I hear people talking about this story, and I know girls particularly can identify with this story because it's got a girl in it. And those with a checkered sexual history can identify with it because of what her sin was. But the reality is, that's all of us. When we stand before God, if someone knew our lives and knew what was on and brought us before Jesus and pointed out our sin, we would be undone because it would, just, it would be exposed. And we'd all stand in that situation. We'd all be caught red-handed. If they knew our thought life, our heart life, things that we'd done in secret, things we'd done in our past that we pray to God, we never see people again who we did them with or we're involved in, think, Lord, never bring them across my path or anyone who knows that. Sometimes when you meet old, old friends, you're like, hi, oh no, I remember what we said and did together. <laughs> I remember things in our life, please don't ever mention that. I sometimes wife friends are when you meet an old friend, you've got the dirt on them. You know, just that, you know, what can you tell me about what they used to do? Because it, it, it generates that kind of fear in us. It's like, if our eyes are exposed, we'd all be like that woman, caught in adultery, red-handed. We are not righteous before God. Romans 3, 23, there is no one righteous, no one, not one. So we'd all be able to stand in that position and feel like she did, caught, exposed, and vulnerable. And the reality is, you know, we can't even live up to our own standards, let alone God's. Anyone try to set standards for yourself, New Year's resolutions, personal standards, I won't do that, I won't say that, I won't act like that. 
We can't even keep them. We fail regularly, let alone God's standards. You ever tried reading the Ten Commandments prayerfully, going through them? You can't get past the first one. <laughs> oh, darn. Blown it. I usually, I usually go to the other end. I'll start at the other end work backwards. It must be easier. Nope. Fail at number ten. And then you think, ugh. You know. We all fall short of God's standards. We all do things wrong. We all sin regularly. We all make mistakes. We're all guilty uh, like her. Sometimes we try and you know, deal with it in a couple of ways. Some people just like, well, if I'm going to do things wrong, I'll just do everything wrong. I'll just go berserk and live a life of sin and I don't care. But sometimes more common for people like us, we try and go the other way. Do you know what? We're so guilty, let's earn our way out of it. Let's live a righteous life. Let's be good. Let's do our spiritual disciplines. Let's give to the church. Let's serve. Let's be good and right moral people. And hopefully we can accrue a more positive kind of side of the scales and the negative sinful side. And maybe we can tip the balance the right way and then God will accept us, which is just a load of rubbish. You know, our righteous acts are filthy rags before God, it says. And the translation of that filthy rags is really not pleasant. So they're not good before God. We are all guilty for sinners. What does that mean for us? Well, if we're all guilty before God and he knows it, that would make it for us really quick and easy to identify our sins and recognize them and put our hands up and say, admit our mistakes, because before God there's nothing to hide. Have you ever played that game where God doesn't know about that one? I've done that. He he, he, he missed that one. I mean, I don't have to deal with that because God didn't see it. It's like the child you know, who hides. Ash did that once the other day when he knew he'd done something bad and I did that, Ash, I did that voice, Ash, sir. And he's like, I know you're guilty, you know you're guilty, you need to deal with this. And he looked at me and went, I'm like, dude, I, I can see you. It's like me hiding in my, my, my cupboard like this. If I hide in the cupboard here, mum will never know I'm here. She won't notice, she'll never find me. It's just ridiculous. God knows. <laughs> he sees it all and he's not surprised. That's the other thing. You confess your sin to God and he's like, really? You did that? Well, I'm glad you owned up to that because I just totally missed that one. No, he knows. And so for us as believers, actually, we're free to be quick to admit our mistakes because we're not hiding anything from God. Second thing, Jesus shows mercy to those who know they are sinners. Jesus shows mercy to those who, knows, who know they're sinners. In the story, who received mercy and grace? The woman. The scribes and the Pharisees didn't. The woman received it. And I submit to you that if you examine her in the story, she knew she was guilty. Because at no point in the story did she try and justify herself. She didn't speak out and say, even, even what about the other guy? The guy. <laughs> the guy I was with. She didn't even try and put blame. She didn't blame shift like Adam did in the garden. That woman you put with me, you know, her fault. She didn't do that. She didn't try and justify it. She didn't get out. She was, she was caught, banged to right. She was nothing she could do about it. She just stayed silent because she knew she was guilty. She knew she was guilty. Even when Jesus spoke to her, and it was kind of more one-on-one, and it was Jesus. Anyone you could talk to, it would be Jesus, because he, he's a guy who welcomes the, the, the poor and the broken and the outcasts. He's a guy who hangs out with them. Even then, she doesn't... Try and, you know, wheedle out it with him. She knows she's guilty. He knows she's guilty. And despite all the accusations coming in her, she doesn't react and say, well, let's, you know, try and push back at that. She just takes it. And the result of that, owning her own sin, she is shown mercy by God. Jesus shows her mercy. Jesus shows her grace. 
Bible says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. One of the words we could use that would be humility. She is aware of her position before God. She's aware of her sin. She's aware of what she's done. And when faced with a holy God, she's just guilty, red-handed, caught, banged to rights. And the great news for us is that when we humble ourselves and confess our sins, God shows us grace and mercy. God shows us grace and mercy. It says in 1 John 1, if we, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just. And it says he will forgive us and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's a promise to stand on there. But actually, as believers, as we confess our sins, God will forgive us. And it's not just in the life of believers, actually. If you're not a believer, if you recognize your sin and you come before God and you confess your sins... You confess who Jesus is. You confess that he died on the cross in your place. He paid that price because, you know, sin requires a penalty, requires a judgment. Jesus paid that price for us on the cross. If we confess that, if we hold on to that, he will accept us. We will be born again into his kingdom. We will be righteous, it says. We will stand before him, holiness, and we will, we will receive grace and mercy and forgiveness. And so for us today, if you're not a believer here today, you, your response is to become a follower of Jesus, become a Christian. If you are a believer here today and you know there are things in your life you need to sort out, today's the day to do it. Repent of your sin. We, do it. we need to build a lifestyle of re- regularly doing that. Um, one of the phrases I've heard over the years is, keep short accounts with God. In fact, when you know you've done something, deal with it as soon as possible. Keep daily accounts of God. I read, um, when you read books about you know, how to do prayer life, how to do Bible study, one of the things that regularly comes up is we should have a regular kind of diet of repentance in our life. The reformer Martin Luther said, all life is one of repentance, turning away from our old way of life, turning away from sin, and pursuing God, pursuing Jesus. And so we're to be people who regularly confess our sins to God and, sometimes more difficult, confess our sins to one another. Confess our sins to one another. And as a result of that, I think it's fair to say we should enjoy God's grace, mercy and forgiveness. We should enjoy the fact that what we have received through God's act um, on the cross, that we, we live in the light of that, we live in the good of that. Once we've been forgiven and moved through, we don't have to then walk around dragging the past with us and what we've done, the guilt and shame that come with that. God's dealt with that. Jesus has dealt with that. We can move on and we can live a life of freedom and goodness in that. Last one, and then we'll finish. Number three. Um, new life in Jesus means new obedience. New life in Jesus means new obedience. This woman was um, caught in her sin. She was shown grace and mercy by God for it. She owned her sin. But then what was the very stern command? It was very kind of straight down the line. No wishy-washy. Go sin no more. Stop it. Don't do it again. That, that, that was the end. There was a new life of obedience. You used to live like that. The cross deals with that. My grace and mercy covers that. My blood is enough for that. Now, live a different life. Live a new life. Sin no more. And for us as believers, that's the command. We have, we have this position and condition. We have a position in Christ where we are saved, where we are holy and righteous, it says. We've been adopted as children. We've been born again. We're now in the kingdom of God. That's what he said. He said so the position cannot, cannot be altered. That's who you are. 
If you've made that, con- that, that confession of faith, that's where you stand. You've been adopted. He's your father. That doesn't change. That will never change. That will last through to eternity. There is a condition we can find ourselves in where we make mistakes, things go wrong, we need to repent, we need to get back to God, and then we need to pursue a life of godliness. Not to earn the position, because we already have that. We don't, you don't earn what you've already got. You've been given it. We then live out of that by the grace that we have received. We choose life and choose godliness. We choose it, and that's what this woman had. Those who've been forgiven much love much, and because we love, we obey the commandments, Jesus says. So when we recognize that we've forgiven of our sin, we've been set free, we love God as gratitude as response to that, and then out of that flows obedience. That's the order. Obedience doesn't come first. You don't do obedience, which then means I earn some love from God um, out of that, and then I get the position that now I'm his child. No, no, it begins, we've got this position. We receive grace, we receive mercy. We love God as a response to that, and then out of that flows a lifestyle of godliness, knowing that we can't alter what's already happened in our life. We have been transformed. You are a new creation, the Bible says. And so for this woman, okay, it just beeped at me. It says memory full. I basically, basically saying stop it now. Shh. Okay, time to wrap this up. <laughs> All right, we're going to finish. Stand up. I'll take the hint. I was getting excited for a moment there. Let's just um, come on. Let's just pray. Do you want to just close your eyes? Can the band come up and we're just going to jump into some worship? in a moment. I just want to pray. I want to give you an opportunity now, before we kind of come before God in a corporate sense to praise him, actively put our sights on him together singing, to deal with stuff if you've got anything in your life that needs dealing with. And it doesn't necessarily need to take a long time. We can just, we can just pray now, put things right before God. God doesn't need you to beat yourself or you know, do penance or anything. It's just a, a confession of your heart and true repentance for him deals with it. So I'm just going to lead us through that time. Maybe you want to close your eyes. Lord God, we want to thank you for your death on the cross. We want to thank you that your blood purchased our freedom. We want to thank you that that death purchased our forgiveness, that death per, um, purchased new life in you. Lord, that we are, we are new creations in you, Lord. As believers, we have a new creation. We are holy and righteous before you. We've been adopted as children. You are our Father. We've been born again into a living hope. We have an eternity that is secure in you, Lord God, but we also recognize before you that we make mistakes. We do things wrong. And we're just going to come before you now, Lord, and if there's anything on our hearts that you, know, that you want to deal with, would you highlight that to us? And if there, I'm just going to leave a moment of silence. If there's something you need to get right before God now, do it now. word that says if we confess our sins you are faithful and just you will forgive us our sin and you will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord we thank you for that today. We thank you for the 
what the work you've done now for the sins of me confess the forgiveness that you have poured out Lord and we want to we want to push in we want to worship you now we want to enjoy the freedom we have in you we want to enjoy your forgiveness and your grace on our life we want to enjoy that we are new creations in you that there is no guilt and shame and condemnation from the past Lord we want to say we love you and we praise you and God's people said Thank you.